Hello, and welcome to a reading of The Wonderful Worlds of Walt Disney's America. Lady and the Tramp It was on Christmas Eve that Lady came to live with her people, Jim Deere and Darling. They loved her at once, but as often happens, they needed some training from her. For example, they thought she would like a little bed and blanket of her own. It took some howls and whining on Lady's part to show them their mistake, but it was not long before they understood that her place was at the foot of Jim Deere's bed, or Darling's in her turn. People are really quite intelligent, as every dog knows. It just takes a little patience to make them understand. By the time spring rolled around, Lady had everything under control. Every morning, she wakened Jim Deere with a bark and a lick at his hand. She brought his slippers and stood by until he got up. Then out she raced through her own small swinging door to meet the postman at the gate. After the postman came the pa- after the postman came the paper boy, and then it was breakfast time. Lady sat beside Jim Deere and Darling to make certain that not a bite or a crumb would go to waste. After making certain that Darling did not need her help with the housework, Lady went out to circle the house to keep all danger away. She barked at sparrows and dragonflies in a brave and fearless way. Then she was free to visit around. Lady had two friends, had two close friends of her own who lived in the houses on either side of hers. One was an old Scotsman known to his friends as Jock. The other was a fine old southern gentleman, Trusty by name. Trusty was a bloodhound, and in the old days he'd had one of the keenest noses south of the Mason-Dixon line. Lady, Jock, and Trusty spent many happy days playing together. Perhaps the nicest part of the day came toward the evening. That was when Jim Deere came home from work. Lady would fly to meet him at his whistle and scamper home at his side. It took only a moment to reach the little house, and then the family was together again, just the three of them, Jim Deere, Darling, and Lady. And all this added up to making her the happiest dog in the world. It was autumn of that year when a bit of urgent business brought a stranger to the neighborhood. The stranger was a cocky young mongrel known around the town simply as the Tramp. This day, he was two jumps ahead of the dog catcher's net, rounding the corner near Lady's house. Just then, along the street came a stately open carriage, followed by two proud carriage towns. Carriage hounds. The tramp fell in step with the two proud carriage hounds until the dog catcher gave up the chase and ambled away. Understand the pickings are pretty slim around here, eh? said the tramp. A lid on every trash can and a fence around every tree, he had just said, when he saw from the corner of one twinkling eye the dog catcher wandering away. Oh ho ho, he barked and dropped out of step. No marching to someone else's tune for this cocky mongrel. Well, the tramp thought, with a merry cock of his head, I may as well have a look around this neighborhood as long as I'm here and my time's my own. And his feet led him down the shady street to the house where Lady lived. Poor Lady was in a very sad state when the tramp appeared. The first dark shadow had fallen over her life. Why, Miss Lady, Trusty asked her, is something wrong? Well, Jim Deere wouldn't play when I went to meet him. And then he called me that dog, Lady admitted sadly. Jim Deere called you that dog, cried Jock. He and Trusty were shocked, but they tried to make light of it. I wouldn't worry my wee head about it, Jock told her as cheerily as he could. Remember, they're only humans after all. Yes, I try, said Lady with tears in her dark eyes. But Darling and I have always enjoyed our afternoon romps together. 
but yesterday she wouldn't go out for a walk at all, and when I picked up a soft ball she a soft ball she dropped and got ready for a game, she said, Drop that lady, and she struck me. Yes, she struck me. To Lady's surprise, Jock and Trusty were laughing now. Don't take it too seriously, Jock explained. Don't you see, Lassie? Darling's expecting a wee bairn. Bairn? said Lady. He means a baby, Miss Lady, Trusty said. What's a baby? Or a bairn, Jock? Lady wanted to know. Just as Jock began to answer Lady's question, the tramp came trotting along. Well, said Jock, staring thoughtfully, they resemble humans, only they're smaller. They walk on all fours. And if I remember correctly, Trusty broke in, they holler a lot. They're very expensive, Jock warned her. You'd not be permitted to play with them. But they're mighty sweet, smiled Trusty. And very, very soft, said Jock. Just a cute little bundle of trouble, a new voice broke in. It was the tramp, who swaggered up to join the group. They scratch, pinch, pull ears, he went on to say, but any dog can take that. It's what they do to your happy home. Home records, that's what they are. Just you wait, miss. You'll see what happens when Junior's here. You get the urge for a nice, comfortable scratch, and put that dog out, they say. He'll get fleas on the baby. You start barking at a strange mud, and stop that racket, they say. You'll wake up the baby. No more of those nice, juicy cuts of beef. Leftover baby food for you. Instead of your nice, warm bed by the fire, a leaky doghouse in the rain. Oh, dear, sobbed Lady. Jock rushed to her side. Don't you listen, Lassie, he growled. No human is that cruel. Of course not, Miss Lady, Trusty put in. Don't believe it. Everyone knows a dog's best friend is his human. Ha! <laughs> laughed the tramp as he turned to leave. Just remember this, Pigeon. A human's heart has only just so much room for love and affection, and when a baby moves in, the dog moves out. Poor lady. She had a long time to worry, all through the long, dreary winter months. At last, on a night of wind and rain, in a most confusing flurry, the baby came. Now there was a stranger in lady's old room. Lady was scarcely allowed inside the door, and when she did follow Darling M, all she could see was a small high bed and a strange wrapped-up shape in Darling's arms. But there was a smile on Darling's lips and a softness in Darling's eyes. When she spoke, she spoke softly and often sang sweet songs. So Lady began to think the baby must indeed be something sweet, if only they could be friends and play. Perhaps it might have worked out that way soon, if only Jim Deer had not been called away. I'll only be gone a few days, Jim Deer explained to Lady with an old-time pat on the head. Aunt Sarah will be here to help you, and I'm counting on you to knock, knock. The door shook under a torrent of bangs. It was Aunt Sarah. Lady watched from between Jim Deere's legs as a stern-faced lady marched in, leaving a stack of luggage on the doorstep for Jim Deere to bring in. I'll put your bags away for you, Aunt Sarah, Jim Deere offered. No need for that, James. You just skedaddle or you'll miss your train. Oh, uh, all right, Aunt Sarah, Jim Deere said. As he rushed toward the door, he managed a last pat for Lady. It's going to be a little rough for a while, she understood from his pat. But it won't be long, and remember, lady, I'm depending on you to watch over things while I'm away. Then Jim Deere was gone, quite gone. Lady knew her job. She raced upstairs to the bed where Darling was having her afternoon rest, and Lady snuggled down on the coverlet within padding distance of her hand. Not for long, though. What is that animal doing here? Lady heard Aunt Sarah's voice. Oh, it's just Lady, Darling smiled. Get off that bed, snapped Aunt Sarah, and she pushed Lady. You'll get fleas on the baby. Shoo! Shoo! 
poor lady. She was hustled straight out of the room, back down to the front hall. There, still waiting, stood Aunt Sarah's bags, so she gave them an experimental sniff. There was something peculiar about one basket, an odor unfamiliar to Lady, and one she did not understand. She sniffed again. She circled the basket. Zip! Out shot a silken paw and clawed her from behind. Lady pounced on the basket. Suddenly, out shot two large forms. Yes, two Siamese cats. They were very sly, they were very sleek, and they were tricky as could be. They walked across the mantelpiece, scratched the best table legs. They bounced on the pillows Lady never touched. But whenever Aunt Sarah came into the room, they made it seem that Lady had done everything bad, and they had been angel twins. Get away, little beast, Aunt Sarah would say, kicking at Lady with a toe. Poor darlings, she would coo, scooping up the Siamese cats in her arms. Dogs don't belong in the house with you. Poor Lady. She was blamed for trying to catch the goldfish when really she was just protecting them from the cats. And when the cats opened the canary cage and were chasing the poor frightened little thing, it was Lady who was blamed by Aunt Sarah, of course, and put out at night in the rain. Everything was just as the tramp had said. Oh, what a sad, sad life. <clears throat> the worst day of all was still to come. That was the day Aunt Sarah took Lady to the pet shop and bought her a muzzle. It isn't safe to have this beast around in the house with a baby unmuzzled, she said. Tears filled poor Lady's eyes. Then the muzzle was snapped on. There now, you little brute, said Aunt Sarah. Lady could stand no more. She reared back on her strong little legs until her leash snapped through, and away Our Lady ran. She had never been alone in the city. The large crowds of people frightened her, and the clatter of hurrying wheels. Down a dim and quiet alley she ran, and she found a hiding place behind a big barrel. There she lay and shook with fright. "'Well, Pidge, what are you doing here?' she heard a brisk voice say. It was the tramp, and how handsome he looked to Lady, how big and strong. She snuggled her head on his manly chest and had herself a good cry. There, there, he said in a gentler tone, get it out of your system and then tell me what this is all about. So Lady told him the whole sad story. And I don't know what to do next, she told him with a sob. First of all, we've got to get rid of that catcher's mitt, said the tramp with a nod at her muzzle. Let's see, a knife? No, that's for humans. A scissors? A saw? Teeth? That's what we need. Come on, we'll visit the zoo. Lady had never heard of a zoo, but she trustingly followed along, and Lady did just as the tramp told her to, until they were safely past the no dogs sign, strolling down the sunny paths inside the zoo. The paths were lined with high fences, and beyond the fences, well, never in her wildest dreams had Lady imagined that animals came in such a variety of sizes and shapes and colors. But though all of them were nice about it, there did not seem to be one who could help remove the muzzle, until they came to the beaver house. Say, said the tramp, if ever a fellow was built to cut, it's beaver. Let's call on him. So they did. That's a pretty cute gadget, beaver said. Oh, that's the pretty cute badget, beaver, beaver said. I can't do the whistle. Pointing at Lady's muzzle, did you make it yourself? Oh no, said Lady. We were hoping you could help us get it off, the tramp explained. Get that muzzle off? Hmm, let's have a look at it. No, I'm afraid not. The only way I can get it off is to chew through it, and that seems a shame. That's exactly what we had in mind, grinned the tramp. It is? The beaver was surprised. Well, it's your thingamajig. Hold still now, this might hurt a bit. 
Lady held as still as could be. There, said Beaver, and with a smile he handed her the muzzle. She was free. It's off, it's off, cried Lady, bouncing up and down the paths with joy. Oh, thank you, thank you, she stopped to say as the tramp prepared to lead her off. Here, said the beaver, you're forgetting something, your gadget. Keep it if you wish, beaver, said the tramp with a lordly air. I can, marveled beaver. Well, say, thanks. And they looked back, and as they looked back, he was trying it on with a happy smile. The question is, what do you want to do now, pigeon, the tramp asked. Oh, I'll have to go home now, lady said. Home, said the tramp. You go home now and you'll just be sliding your head into another muzzle. Stay away a few hours. Let him worry. Give Aunt Sarah a chance to cool off. Have dinner with me at a little place I know, and then I'll show you the town. Lady had never known anyone so masterful. She found herself following along, and she had to admit that dinner on the back step of a little restaurant was the best meal she'd had for weeks. Then they went to the circus, ladies first. They had wonderful seats under the first row. After the circus, Lady and Tramp took a stroll in the park, and since it was spring and the night was warm and they were young, time passed all too quickly. The first rays of morning caught Lady by surprise. <coughs> oh dear, she said, I must go home. Look, said Tramp, they've given you a pretty rough time. You don't owe them a thing. Look at the big wide world down here. It's ours for the taking, Pidge. It sounds wonderful, Lady admitted, but it leaves out just one thing. A baby I promised to watch over and protect. The tramp gave a deep sigh. You win, he said. I'll take you home. But on the way, they passed a chicken yard. Tramp could not resist. Ever chase chickens, Ever chase chickens, Pidge? No? Then you've never lived. In a flash, he was scraping a hole under the fence. But we shouldn't, said Lady. That's why it's fun, the tramp explained. So she followed him in. And when the chickens squawked and the farmer came running, it was Lady who was caught. Oh, the tramp tried to warn her, but she simply didn't know her way around. The next thing she knew, she was in the dog pound. Lady had never met dogs like those she found in the pound. At first, they frightened her, but she soon found they had hearts of gold, and she found they knew the tramp. Now there's a bloke what, now there's a bloke what never gets caught, said one. Yep, his only weakness is dames, said another. Got a new one every week. He does, said Lady. Well, I certainly hope I wouldn't give a second thought to a person like that. But really, she felt so, she felt very sad. She was sure now the tramp had let her be caught so he could go on to another dame. Her reception when she got home did not make her feel any better. She was put out in the doghouse on a stout chain. When the tramp came around to call early, early the next day, Lady would not even speak to him. That was just what one stranger in the yard had hoped to see. The stranger was, sleeking, was slinking silently along under the dark cover of the tall grass near the fence. From the end of the fence, it was a short dash to the shelter of the woodpile, and there the stranger lurked, waiting for the darkness, that arch-enemy of all society, the rat. The rat was no stranger in one way. He had often poked around this house, trying to find a way in, but always he had been frightened off by the thought of a dog on guard. Now, seeing Lady safely chained far from the back door, and having watched her send the tramp away, the rat thought his big chance had come at last. So in the dim light of dusk, he left his hiding place and scurried toward the back door. 
Lady was standing at her doghouse doorway, looking sadly after the tramp, and wondering if she had been too cruel not to let him try to explain. When she saw it, that sly, evil figure slinking toward her house, toward Darling and the baby. Lady had never seen a rat before, but some instinct told her that his that this creature was evil and vicious. She knew this stranger must not be allowed in the house. When she saw it slinking through her own little swinging door, Lady went wild with rage. Barking wildly, she lunged against the chain. Far down the street, the tramp heard her and stopped in his tracks. Upstairs in the house, Aunt Sarah heard too, but she was not one to understand. Lady, stop that racket, she snapped, then slammed the window and turned away. Darling heard the uproar. What is it, Aunt Sarah? she asked. Nothing, Elizabeth, but that spoiled brat carrying on because she's chained up. But she's never carried on like this before, Darling worried. Could someone be trying to break into the house? Perhaps if we went down to see. Nonsense, snapped Aunt Sarah. Stop being ridiculous and go back to sleep, Elizabeth. And you hush up, you little beast. At that very moment, the evil rat was pulling himself step by step up the stairs. But at that moment, too, the tramp came back. He wondered why Lady was barking. "'What's wrong, Pidge?' he asked. "'A horrible creature went in the house,' Lady panted anxiously. "'Horrible creature? Sure you're not seeing things, Pidge?' "'Oh, please, please,' cried Lady. "'Don't you understand? Tramp, please, the baby. We must protect the baby.' With one last lunge, she snapped the chain. Staggering forward, she broke into a run and raced fearlessly for the back door. The tramp was close behind her. Take it easy, he told her in his firm, soothing tones. Remember, I'm right with you. Through the kitchen they raced, side by side in the darkness, then into the hall and up the stairs. Lady led the way to the baby's room and the tramp followed close behind. But just inside the door they both stopped short, for there, sure enough, was the rat. The tramp knew what to do, and he wasted no time. He disposed of the rat behind a chair in the corner, while Lady stood guard over the crib. The tramp was just returning, still panting from his battle with the rat, when Aunt Sarah, broom in hand, appeared. "'Take that, you mangy cur!' she cried, lowering the broom on the tramp. He winced and ran before the weapon, and found himself locked in a dark closet. Now Darling was there, too, cuddling the baby as she sang sweet songs." Lady, darling, said in surprise, whatever got into you? Hm, said Aunt Sarah. She's jealous of the baby and brought one of her vicious friends in to attack the child. Oh, I'm sure not, cried darling. I believe that she saw the stray and came in to protect the baby. Rubbish, said Aunt Sarah. But lady is your responsibility. If you don't know your duty, I know mine. I will notify the authorities. They'll take care of this other brute once and for all. As for you, she picked lady up by the scruff of her neck. I'm locking you in the kitchen for the night. Bad news travels fast in the animal world. By morning, everybody in the neighborhood knew, eh, knew every pigeon, canary, and squirrel that the tramp had been picked up and was to be taken off to be executed. Aunt Sarah's cats knew, and for once even they felt something like sympathy as they tiptoed past the kitchen where Lady sobbed alone. Jock and Trusty heard it. They watched from behind the shrubbery as the dog-pound wagon stopped at the door, and the catcher came out, leading the tramp to his doom. We misjudged him badly, Jacques admitted. Yes, said Trusty, he's a very brave lad, and Miss Lady's taking it very hard. There must be some way we can help, said Jacques to Trusty, but they could not think what it would be. Lady knew, though, there was just one chance, and it came when a taxi stopped at the door. 
Jim Deer was home at last. Darling told Jim Deer the story of their terrible night as soon as he came in. But I still don't understand, said Jim. Why should a strange dog and lady... Lady, leaping at the kitchen door, tried to say that she could explain. Jim Deer opened the door and knelt beside her while she jumped up to lick his face. Lady, what's all this about, old girl? You know the answer, I'm sure, he said. For a reply, Lady jumped past Jim Deer and raced up the stairs to the baby's room. She's trying to tell us something, he said. Jim Deer was at Lady's heels. You're right, dear, she said, and when Lady... And when Lady showed her the dead rat behind the chair, at last she knew what it was. Don't you see, he cried, that strange dog wasn't attacking the baby. He was helping Lady protect it instead. Oh, Jim, dear, and we've sent him off, darling wailed, clasping her hands. I don't see the reason for all this fuss, Aunt Sarah sternly said. Aunt Sarah, said Jim, I'm going to save that dog, and you are going to leave. Well, I never, Aunt Sarah gasped. Then off raced Jim Deere in the taxi cab on the trail of the dog pound cart. But Lady was ahead of him. With Trusty and Jacques beside her, Lady was off, down through the street and through the town on the wagon's trail. They made some wrong turns. There were some dead ends. But at last they sighted the cart ahead, with the tramp watching them through the wire mesh. Straight to the horse's feet the three dogs ran. Then, barking and snapping and leaping about, Trusty, Jacques, and Lady set the horse to rearing nervously until the whole cart swayed and tipped. They had won. Now up rattled Jim Deere's taxicab. That dog, cried Jim Deere, pointing to the tramp, rubbing noses with Lady through the bars. It's all been a terrible mistake. You mean that mongrel is yours, mister? The driver asked. Yes, said Jim Deere. He's mine. So home Lady and the Tramp went in a taxicab with Jim Deere, and that was the end of the story. Almost. Let us visit that little house once more at Merry Christmas time. See the baby playing on the floor, surrounded by wiggling puppy dogs. Jim Deere and Darling are watching baby with love and pride in their eyes, and watching the puppies are Lady and the Tramp. The End. Toby Tyler, Pigs, Poster, Peanuts. Once, about 50 years ago, or more, a 10-year-old farm boy became a star performer in a traveling circus. This might never have happened if it hadn't been for some hungry pigs, a circus poster, and six peanuts. The boy, whose name was Toby Tyler, lived with his Aunt Olive and his Uncle Daniel on a modest farm near Guilford. It was a poor year for crops, and Uncle Daniel couldn't afford a hired man. The gray-haired farmer had to work in the fields from the crack of dawn till sundown, and Toby helped him with the chores. One morning, Toby vaulted the fence behind the barn on his way to the cow pasture. As the short, sturdy boy trotted through the barnyard, a flock of clucking chickens scurried out of the way. Old Red, the plow horse, looked up from the water trough and nickered at him. Toby waved a friendly greeting, but did not stop. As he neared their pen, the pigs raised their snouts and filled the air with complaining squeals of hunger. But the farm boy went on his way toward the barn. Nope, he thought, not now. Before I feed those pigs their slop, I've got to put up the cow to pasture, and then I've got to... But Toby never got to finish listing his chores, for just then he turned the corner and saw the poster. He stopped his eyes wide with wonder. Someone had slapped the poster up with paste on the front of the barn. Blazing with color against the weathered planking, it said, 
Colonel Sam Castle's Great American Circus, performances afternoon and evening rain or shine, featuring the Mammoth, Free and Grotty Morning Street Parade, courtesy of Colonel S. Castle, Guilford, July 2nd. Toby's head swam. He brushed his hand across his eyes and stared harder. July 2nd, he whispered. That's today! Then, forgetting his chores, he ran off. At Guilford, the parade had already started. When Toby came dashing into town, he could hear music and see nodding plumes in the tops of passing wagons. But the townsfolk were packed so tightly, they blocked everything else from his view. Toby took a deep breath and, plunging into the crowd, began crawling between people's legs. At last, he managed to fight his way up front, and there he stood, his round face beaming with delight until the steam calliope that marked the end of the parade. Toby's next stop was the circus grounds. There, he wandered along the midway, staring at the large posters in front of the sideshows. A ticket seller called, Step this way, folks! Get your tickets for the big show here! Count your change before you leave the ticket window! Hurry! 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 Fishing around in his pocket, Toby came out with one penny. He looked at it ruefully. He hadn't even bought a ticket, but this was all the change he had to count. Sighing, he returned it to his pocket. Then he stopped to watch a man working inside a booth. The man was flashily dressed and had crafty eyes. As he filled a tray with striped bags of peanuts, he called, Crispy, crunchy circus peanuts, get them here! Toby had begun fingering the coin in his pocket again, when suddenly the man looked up and said, You a buyer or a looker? This was no easy decision for Toby to make. He thought it over for almost a full minute. At last, he said, how many peanuts could I get for a penny? The man made a quick mental calculation, then said, I dare say I could part with, oh, about six. Only six? That's more than you'd get if you bought them by the bag, the man's voice rose hoarsely. He seemed grieved that the boy doubted his generosity, and that's a fact. Again, Toby took his time thinking it over, but finally he drew his fist out of his pocket, laid the penny on the counter, and said gravely, Six peanuts, please. Toby Tyler, the golden opportunity. Toby cracked the first peanut, then made a sour face and said, You swap the ones back that are bad? The man was shocked. Bad? I don't sell bad peanuts, boy. It tastes bad. After glancing about to see if anyone else had heard, the man said quickly, Here's two more. Now run along. You'll miss the best part of the show. Toby carefully cracked another peanut. I'm not going to the show. Not going? You lack the price of a ticket? Yes, sir. I suppose your parents are bringing you tonight. No, sir, I don't have any parents. Orphan boy. Suddenly, the man seemed very interested. Leaning forward on the counter, he said, Ever think of joining a circus lad? Me? Toby was so startled he almost choked. Yes, you. Imagine being part of the glorious family of artists under the big top. Imagine traveling the length and breadth of this great land of ours. But what could I do, Toby said, bewildered. You can become a concessionaire like me. I could? Uh, 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 the boy couldn't even pronounce the word. Free transportation, the man went on. A snug place to sleep, all you can eat. See the performance any time you please. And if that weren't enough, each Saturday night, yours truly, Harry Tupper, will present you with one of these. Mr. Harry Tupper held up a silver dollar that glinted in the sunlight. What do you say, boy? Is it a bargain? 
Gosh, Toby thought, working for a circus. I guess I'd like that better, he said dreamily, than anything in the world. Mr. Tupper chuckled. You would, eh? Trouble is, Toby continued, Uncle Daniel and Aunt Olive need me. Mr. Tupper's silver dollar quickly flew back to his pocket. Drawing back coldly, he said, Aunt and Uncle. They're awful poor, Toby said, and there's lots of work I have to do for them around the farm, but I could ask them maybe. Mr. Tupper was no longer interested. Don't give it another thought, he said. I'll pick up a boy in the next town. Plenty of them would be glad to get such a golden opportunity. He dismissed Toby with a wave of his hand and turned back to his work. But when he looked up a few moments later, the boy was still standing there. Sighing, Mr. Tupper produced his wallet and took out a piece of paper, which he signed with a flourish. Just so's we part the best of friends, he said, here's a free pass to the performance tonight. Come and enjoy yourself, courtesy of Harry Tupper. Toby's eyes shone with joy all the way home. He could hardly believe his luck. The piece of paper in his hand was a genuine free pass to the circus. But when he got to the farmhouse, a spare, graying man with stern features grabbed him roughly by the collar, and the joy drained quickly out of him. Where have you been? Uncle Daniel wanted to know. Toby flinched. Uncle Daniel's eyes were blazing. I'm sorry, Toby stammered. I meant to come back, Uncle Daniel, but there was a parade, and, and then I happened to go to the circus grounds. Circus, Uncle Daniel shouted. Did you know the pigs broke down the fence because you forgot to feed them and rooted up the turnip field? Did you? Toby could only shake his head. You're a shiftless, ungrateful boy. Aunt Olive moved forward. The middle-aged farm woman spoke softly, trying to calm her husband. Daniel, don't be so hard on Toby. Boys get skittish when a circus comes to town. Toby doesn't have a right to behave like other boys, the farmer shouted. Toby's got no right at all, and he knows why. At this, Toby hung his head to hide the tears that had come to his eyes. My wife and I go without things so that we can feed and clothe you, the farmer went on. I'm a poor man, yet I took you in when no one else would have you. You're no kin to us. You're nothing to us but a millstone around our necks. Thrusting Toby toward the hall staircase, he said, Go up to bed and stay there. There'll be no, there'll be no place at supper for you tonight. When Toby was gone, Aunt Olive said, Daniel, you are overly harsh with the boy. It's true he let the pigs go hungry and we've lost our turnip crop, but those were terribly cruel things to say to him. You couldn't have meant them. Toby didn't hear his aunt. As the sobbing boy trudged up the stairs, a plan was forming in his mind. He'd wait until dark. Then he'd run away to take advantage of the golden opportunity that Mr. Tupper had offered him. Uncle Daniel would never have to go without things to feed and clothe him again. Toby Tyler, Runaway The evening performance was over, and the work of taking down the canvas had started. The circus lot was a bedlam of activity. Torches cast eerie shadows over straining horses and shouting men. Somewhere in the darkness, a tiger roared. Harry Tupper was loading boxes onto a baggage wagon when he heard a small voice. Here I am, Mr. Tupper, it said. Tupper looked about. Behind him stood a boy carrying a bundle of clothing. Well, Tupper said sourly, what of it? Don't you know me? You said I could work for you. The concessionaire put down a box and peered suspiciously at Toby Tyler. What about that aunt and uncle? It's all right, Toby said huskily. They don't want me. They said I was a millstone around their necks. Tupper turned back to his loading. Then you got a job, 50 cents a week. You said a dollar. The man glared, but the boy stood his ground. 
Finally, Tupper shrugged. If I said a dollar, I meant a dollar. But don't you try running away after I spend my time teaching you the business. Oh, no, sir, Toby said said earnestly. Again, the concessionaire tried to get back to his loading. This time, Toby said, Mr. Tupper, I didn't have any supper tonight. Muttering angrily, Tupper scrambled around in a provision box and came up with a battered-looking banana. Here you are, he said, nutritional gold from the Indies. See that it holds you till morning. Now stay here and keep out of trouble. I'll be right back. With a sigh, Toby moved near one of the animal wagons and prepared to bite into the moldy fruit. But just then, a small, hairy fist darted out through the bars and snatched the banana away. Whirling quickly, Toby thrust his hand into the cage to seize the paw of a young chimpanzee. As Toby struggled to bring him close to the bars, the chimp gulped down the banana hastily. "'You thief!' Toby cried. "'Give that back!' The chimp set up a violent outcry. This touched off a chain reaction of noise from the other monkeys in the cage, and a burly, powerful man came running. The burly man was Ben Cotter, who doubled as the circus strongman and driver of the monkey wagon. What did you do to that chimp, Ben Cotter wanted to know. Toby was outraged. Me? I didn't do anything. It was the monkey. I had a banana and he stole it from me. Then Harry Tupper came running. I thought I told you to stay out of trouble, he shouted at Toby. He stole my banana, Toby said. At this, the chimp gave, a vent, gave vent to a new series of cries, and now Colonel Castle, the circus owner, came galloping. "'What's going on here?' Colonel Castle called sharply from the saddle. Tupper was suddenly all smiles. "'Nothing, Colonel. Nothing at all. The monks just got a little excited.' The colonel pointed at Toby. "'Who's this? He's my new helper, sir.' The colonel scowled. "'Picking them kind of small, aren't you, Tupper?' "'It's all right, sir. He doesn't have any folks, poor lad.' Then, stepping forward and lowering his voice, Tupper said, I plan to take him under my wing. Give him a helping hand. The colonel snorted. Spare me your kind intentions, Tupper. Let's get this circus moving. The boy can ride up on top with Ben. Ben Cotter let out a bellow of protest. Thunderation, colonel! Why pick on me to nurse Tupper's sniveling brats? Trim your wagon, the colonel said, cutting him short. We're moving. Then he wheeled his horse about and rode off. A few moments later, Ben Cotter was glaring fiercely down at Toby from the driver's seat of the monkey wagon. The boy stirred uneasily. He was glad he was still on the ground. Suddenly, he felt homesick. He was just about to tell Mr. Tupper that he had changed his mind about the job when suddenly the colonel's voice rang out, "'Move him!' At once, the night was alive with the creaking sound of moving wagons. Harry Tupper grabbed Toby and boosted him toward Ben Cotter, who fished him up easily and sent him sprawling over the seat. Then, Ben Cotter snapped the reins and the wagon started with a jolt. Toby was clinging desperately to the seat, having all he could do to keep from pitching to the ground when he heard Tupper call, You'll be snug as a mouse up there, lad. Ben will be glad to take care of you. Almost an hour passed before the driver even spoke to Toby. Let's get one thing straight, he said. Me, I don't like kids, especially mar- especially runaways. They're a weak-livered lot. Toby said nothing, but his jaw firmed. A kid has a good home, the driver said. First time some little thing goes wrong, he runs away. Then he finds things don't suit him just right. He wants to run home again. Toby stared at the road as if measuring the distance there from the wagon seat. Ben Cotter said, go ahead, jump. Nobody will miss you. I doubt if you're worth missing. Toby glared, but remained silent. Jump, don't be scared. I'm not scared, Toby said angrily. 
Then, after a pause, I'm not scared of you either. Ben's expression didn't change. Fair enough, Sonny. Don't call me Sonny. My name's Toby Tyler. All right, Sonny, we'll call you Toby. There was another pause. Finally, Ben said, it's none of my business, but maybe you better catch some sleep. Morning comes early with this outfit. Not sleepy, Toby said stubbornly. Suit yourself. Defiantly, Toby opened his eyes wide, folded his arms across his chest, and stared straight ahead. The circus caravan, with its line of swinging lanterns, kept moving through the night. Toby Tyler, Circus Morning Toby was awakened the next morning by a small twig landing on his nose. He had been sleeping at the base of the wagon, warmly wrapped in Ben Cotter's coat. He opened his eyes and looked around, puzzled. Another twig came flying and hit him on the head. Toby sat up and saw the same mischievous little chimp grinning at him. Glaring angrily, the boy reached to the ground for something to throw. You better be up and doing, boy, before Harry Tuffer comes looking for you. Ben Cotter was standing over him, a towel flung over his muscular shoulder. Quickly, Toby drew back his hand. Thanks for taking care of me last night, he said. Guess I fell asleep. Didn't mean nothing to me one way or another, Ben said gruffly. I didn't want you falling off and me getting blamed. Toby looked hurt. I won't bother you anymore. I'm sure glad to hear that, Ben said. The circus camp was pitched and already humming with activity. Men were hurrying back and forth, grooming the animals or working with pieces of equipment. As Ben made his way between carts, stock animals, and crates, Toby followed at a safe distance. He caught up with the driver at the bank of a small stream and said lamely, I was wondering where to wash. Ben pointed at the stream. That's water, ain't it? Yes, sir. All right, now do me a favor and keep out of my way. Ben moved downstream and began sloshing water on his face. Toby had just squatted down on the bank and was preparing to wash when an angry voice blasted in his ear. What's the idea making me chase all over camp for you? Harry Tupper wanted to know. Morning, Mr. Tupper, the boy said politely. I was just washing up. Tupper took him roughly by the arm and began pulling him away. Not on my time, you aren't. Toby stumbled and fell, but Tupper yanked him to his feet again. Come on, move along. There's work to be. The concessionaire never finished the sentence. For suddenly, Tupper found himself lifted off the ground. He squawked with fright. Let me down, he screeched. Ben Cotter had come up behind him, taken him by the shirt slack, and lifted him aloft. Now the strong man was walking back toward the stream, holding Tupper at arm's length as easily as if he were a baseball bat. Now Mr. Tupper, Ben said, I don't believe in coddling, but I got my fill you're mistreating your helpers before breakfast every morning. Tupper's feet kicked wildly. The boy works for me. I'll do as I like with him. Ben went on gravely. If the boy don't do what you tell him, Mr. Tupper, you can fire him. But if I ever catch you roughing him up again, I'm quite liable to do something like this. Abruptly letting go, Ben dropped Tupper into the stream. Then he turned and glowered at Toby. As for you, listen to Mr. Tupper. Work hard and do your job right. Toby nodded vigorously. Yes, sir. Now you can go to work soon as you've had your breakfast. The cook tent is over there. In the cook tent, a number of performers were seated at planked tables eating breakfast. Toby came off the chow line, his plate loaded with sausage, scrambled eggs, wheat cakes, and chunks of cornbread. He glanced about uncertainly, not knowing where to sit. Why don't you sit over there? Toby turned. A little girl was smiling at him. She was the prettiest girl Toby had ever seen. 
He sat down beside her. Then, remembering his manners, he took off his cap and said, Thanks. My name's Janet, she said. I'm a bareback rider. You're new around here, aren't you? Yes, ma'am, Toby said. I ride as a team with Ajax, she continued. He's twelve years old and he thinks he knows everything. Just then, a tall boy approached the table. He stared at Toby with annoyance. You're not supposed to sit here, you know, he said brusquely. This is a performer's table. Janet made a face. Stop it, Ajax. I asked him to sit down. Not knowing quite what to say, Toby smiled nervously and continued eating. The tall boy pounded the table with his fist. Did you hear what I said? And look at me when I talk to you. Janet tossed her head angrily. Oh, Ajax, let him alone. He's not supposed to be at our table, Ajax shouted. He pushed Toby. Go on, get away. A tall, cheerful-looking man had stopped near the table to watch the quarrel. He moved forward, balancing five plates of food along his arm and smiling broadly. Well, well, there you are, my boy, he said to Toby. Colonel Carter especially asked me to look out for you. Toby blinked, puzzled. Me? The man went on smoothly. Are you taking a professional non-diplume this year, or do you plan to use your own name? Toby was bewildered. My own, I guess. Which is, of course, Toby Tyler. Toby Tyler, to be sure, the man cried. Wonderful name. I've always liked it. Then, turning to Janet and Ajax, you've heard of Toby Tyler, of course. Now it was Ajax's turn to be confused. The arrogant boy said nervously, gosh, if he'd only told us. The man said, too late for apologies. Then, respectfully addressing Toby, will you do me the honor of having breakfast with my family and me? As they left the cook tent together, Toby's rescuer said, allow me to introduce myself. I'm Sam Treat, circus clown. Toby gasped. A clown? Still balancing the plates of food along his arm, Sam Treat bowed. At your, at your service, he said in a comical Dutch accent. Then, saluting broadly, he pretended to jab himself in the eye. Ow! When they reached his tent, the clown set the plates along a table and said, Sit down, Toby. I know the kids will be glad to see you. Toby asked, Do you have a big family, Mr. Treat? Depends. Most of the time, I'd say oh, somewhere between four and five. Cupping his hands to his mouth, Sam Treat called, Hey, kids, breakfast! At this, the lids of four small wardrobe trunks flew open. A pack of dogs climbed out and made a dash for the table. Gathering along the bench on either side of Toby, they fell hungrily on the food. When Toby could stop laughing, he said, Gosh, when you said you had a family, I thought... Toby paused, embarrassed. That's all right, the clown said gently. They're family to me. Not what you're used to, not what you're used to, I suppose. Toby hung his head. I don't have a regular family either. That's why I joined the circus. That's so. I ran away, Toby explained. It wasn't because they didn't want me, but they're awful poor. I was just a millstone around their necks. You figure you'll ever go back? Toby heaved a great sigh. <sighs> Guess not. Leastways, not till I earn enough money to bring home so I can show I'm not what they said I was. While the boy picked moodily at his food, the clown got up and went over to his makeup box. He rooted around in it until he came up with an old leather money pouch. Tossing the pouch down on the table, he said, Save your money in this, Toby. Don't wait till it's too late. Toby reached for the pouch and held it tightly. Thank you, Mr. Treat, he said. I'll work real hard. I'll do everything Mr. Tupper tells me. I'll... Suddenly, the boy clapped his hand to his head. Oh, my gosh! What's the matter? I forgot about Mr. Tupper waiting for me. 
Toby ran quickly out of the tent, calling back over his shoulder, Thanks, Mr. Treat. Bye for now. Toby Tyler, Mr. Stubbs. The afternoon performance was underway, and Toby Tyler was inside the big tent at last. He moved slowly along the aisle, a big tray of peanut bags and taffy apples strapped to his shoulders. Peanuts, Toby called. Nice, crispy, crunchy peanuts and taffy apples. Peanuts, nice, crispy, crunchy peanuts, taffy. The words died out slowly on his lips. His head tilted back and his eyes widened. He stood this way, watching the performers on the trapeze at the top of the tent, until suddenly Harry Tupper came up behind him and gave him an angry shove. Startled, Toby ran off, shouting at the top of his lungs, Peanuts! Peanuts and taffy apples! After that, Toby kept his mind on business for almost ten full minutes. But then he heard Colonel Castle announce from the center of the ring, Ladies and gentlemen, your kind attention, please. The Great American Circus presents the Mighty Banjo. Toby paused, his eyes shining as he gave his kind attention. The Mighty Banjo was Ben Cotter wearing tights. Proudly nudging a spectator, Toby pointed to the ring and said, Here's a friend of mine. Oh, he's a friend of mine. But then, looking along his pointing finger, he saw Harry Tupper down near the edge of the ring, glaring balefully up at him. Toby leaped into action at once, breaking out in full cry, Peanuts! Taffy apples! All through the dancing elephant act, the jugglers, the liberty horses, and the clowns, Toby tended to business. But then, after a roll of drums, the band broke into a Strauss waltz. Janet and Ajax made an imposing entrance, leading their horses into the ring. Standing directly in front of an indignant spectator, Toby watched them, his mouth slack with awe. Down in front, the spectator cried, sit down. Without thinking, his eyes still on the ring where the two young performers were cantering about gracefully, Toby sat down. Someone slid into the seat beside him, and a harsh voice grated close to his ear. Great show, isn't it? Toby nodded dreamily. Sure is. Still dreamy-eyed, Toby turned to see who shared his own high opinion of the show. It was Harry Tupper, glaring at him more peevishly than ever. No arrow ever flew from any bow faster than Toby Tyler did from that bench, and for the rest of the performance he managed to keep his mind on business and his back to the performers. After the show, Toby went to the lemonade stand and handed over the day's receipts to Harry Tupper. The concessionaire counted greedily, a dollar thirty-five, forty, fifty, sixty, sixty-five. Stopping, he held up one coin that shone dully and was softer than the rest. What's this? he said. Why, you blithering greenhorn, don't you know any better than to take a lead slug? I'm sorry, Mr. Tupper, Toby said. I don't know much about money. Tupper snorted. Then I'll have to teach you. Listen, number one, I'm replacing this slug with a nickel out of your first week's pay. Yes, sir, Toby said brightly. Then he held out three nickels. And what do I do with these? Tupper scowled. Where'd you get them? They were left over. When I tried to give them back, they said, keep the change. The concessionaire gulped, startled by the boy's innocence. Then, smiling craftily, he said, that, my lad, is called a tip. As a matter of custom, all tips belong to the head concessionaire, which is me. Toby was crestfallen. Yes, sir. However, if you report all your tips, I'll split them with you. Thus, two nickels for me, one nickel for you. Toby beamed. Thank you, sir. Tupper studied him carefully for a moment. 
Then, satisfied that the boy was fooled, he gestured toward a small mountain of glasses and bowls on the counter. Now get busy and clean up that mess, he said, and lighting a cigar, he drifted off. Toby was tired, but he went right to work clearing the counter. He took the tray of peanuts and taffy apples and placed it on top of a barrel near the animal wagon. Then, with a sigh, he went off to get an apron. After a moment, a chimpanzee's hand reached out from inside the wagon. The hand groped around until it came to rest on top of a taffy apple. Then it took hold of the stick. And then the tray had one taffy apple less than before. Toby returned with an apron around his waist. An hour later, he was polishing the last of the glasses. He proudly set it on the counter next to the rest of the clean, shining glassware. Just then, an apple core hit him on the head. Puzzled, he picked it up and looked at it. A second apple core came flying and knocked over a couple of glasses. Toby hurried over to the barrel where he had left the tray. It had fallen to the ground. Angrily, Toby looked up at the monkey cage. The little chimp was seated inside the cage amid a pile of peanut shells, torn peanut bags, and remnants of taffy apples. He was nibbling half-heartedly at the last apple when he saw the boy. Snickering, he tossed the apple core feebly at Toby. Toby sputtered with fury. You, you, all because of you, Mr. Tupper will skin me alive. I hope you get sick. I hope you get so sick you turn green. That night, the moaning chimp was stretched out on the table in Sam Treat's tent. Toby, Sam, and Sam's family of dogs were all staring gravely down at him. He's awful sick, isn't he, Toby said. Don't look so good, Sam said. That's a fact. Toby's mouth trembled. Gosh, I didn't want him to get this sick. It's all my fault. He'll eat anything, Sam said. I think he's part ostrich. Leaning over, the clown reached down toward the chimp's throat and began handing objects back to Toby. See what I mean, he said. A button hook, a trunk key, a hairbrush, a piece of clothesline. At first, Toby couldn't believe his eyes. When he finally realized that the clown was doing a slate of hand trick, he grinned with relief. Sure had me fooled, Toby said. Can you fix him up? Always have, said Sam Treat. He reached into a packet into a packing case and brought out a jug marked castor oil. At sight of the jug, all the dogs vanished into their carrying cases. The chimp tried to squirm off the table, but Toby held him tightly. Hang on, Sam said. Don't let him bite you. As the oil went down his throat, the chimp struggled violently. But then his eyes glazed and the fight went out of him. Toby gently gathered him up in his arms. The chimp snuggled against the boy's shoulder like an infant, whimpering softly. Toby had a lump in his throat so big he was unable to swallow it. At last, he said, sure hate to put him back in that monkey cage. Sam nodded. Be a good idea to keep him warm tonight. Here, wrap him in this shawl. Maybe he can sleep with me, Toby said. You better ask Ben, Sam said. The monks are his responsibility. When the circus moved out that night, the chimp was still in Toby's arms. We're going to be friends now, aren't we, Mr. Stubbs, Toby said. Stubbs, Ben Cotter said as he swung up beside Toby on the front seat of the monkey wagon. Why Mr. Stubbs? He reminds me of old Mr. Stubbs who runs the general store back home. Toby smiled down at the chimp in his arms. Yes, sir, Mr. Stubbs, he said softly. Real good friends. That's going to be us. Ben snapped the reins and the wagon lurched forward. How I let you talk me into this, I don't know, he grumbled. Colonel Castle's number one rule is animals stay in cages where they belong. Toby Tyler, Fireworks. Without taking his eyes from the road, Ben reached over and shook Toby awake. 
The boy yawned and squinted up at the sun. The chimp on his lap was still asleep. What time is it? Late, Ben said. We had a breakdown during the night. We're parading straight into Woodvale and we'll set canvas afterward. Toby sat up excitedly. Gosh, I get to ride in the parade. Ben handed him a visored cap and said, Here, you want to be circus? Look, circus. How about a hat for Mr. Stubbs? Never mind that. Whatever you do, just hang on to that monk. As they approached Woodvale, they heard the popping of firecrackers. Hey, I almost forgot, Toby said. It's the 4th of July. Ben frowned. Yeah, the animals will just love the fireworks. Turning up Main Street was like entering an artillery barrage. Mr. Stubbs chattered with fright and struggled in Toby's arms. The horses reared and stomped nervously. A lighted string of firecrackers flew through the air and landed on the monkey wagon just behind Ben and Toby. When the string went off, exploding violently, Mr. Stubbs shot right up into the air and made a panicky four-paw landing on the back of one of the horses. Screaming shrilly, the horse pitched and reared. His terror spread to the rest of the team and they broke into a wild run. Ben pulled the reins with all his strength, but soon the wagon was tilting dangerously. Look out, Toby, Ben shouted. Jump! Ben rolled clear of the crashing wagon, but Toby had to be pulled away by spectators. Nobody had to help the monkeys. The accident had sprung a door in their cage, and they streamed out and scampered off in every direction, happy to be free. Toby rose shakily to his feet. He heard Colonel Castle shouting orders. He saw a clown run by with a recaptured monkey under his arm. Suddenly, Toby's face went white. Where was Mr. Stubbs? Was he hurt? Toby ran down the street, searching for his friend. His friend was in the sheriff's office. The chimp stood on the desk, curiously inspecting a revolver. The muzzle kept swinging aimlessly. It was pointing toward an open window when suddenly the chimp's finger found the trigger. Blam! A bullet shattered a street lamp. Blam! A plate glass door hit, bit the dust. News of the gun-toting chimp spread through town like wildfire. Toby came running. Toby came running. Look out! The sheriff called. Take cover! Pulling Toby down, the sheriff made him flatten himself on the ground. The monks got just one more shot, he said. All we have to do is wait him out. After the next shot, the sheriff grinned with relief. Rest easy, folks, he called. That was the last bullet. The sheriff rose and dusted off his pants. He was ready to take over his place of business again. But inside the office, Mr. Stubbs had just found another revolver. And when the sheriff walked calmly through the door... Blam! A bullet sent his hat flying from his head. The sheriff dived for the street, leaving Mr. Stubbs still in charge. Now the sheriff borrowed a rifle and drew a bead on the chimp through the window. No! Toby cried. Please don't hurt him! Look out, boy! I hate to do this, but I'm going to get him before he shoots someone, the sheriff said grimly. But before the sheriff could take aim again, Toby ran for the office. As the boy came in, the chimp turned quickly, the revolver muzzle swinging with him. The boy paused. Hi, Mr. Stubbs, he said. It's me, Toby. Cautiously, Toby moved closer. We're friends now, Mr. Stubbs, remember? The revolver weaved erratically. The boy inched forward another step. Easy, easy, Mr. Stubbs. Toby was still coming forward, his hand held out. Suddenly, the chimp turned the gun around, sniffed it, and put the muzzle to his mouth. No, Mr. Stubbs, stop! As Toby lunged forward to grab it, the gun went off. The bullet thudded into an overhead beam, and Mr. Stubbs jumped into Toby's arms. 
Late that night, Colonel Castle showed a newspaper to Ben and Toby. The headlines said, "Monkeys capture Woodvale. Animals celebrate Independence Day by making break for freedom. Boy disarms gun-toting chimpanzee." The colonel beamed at the strong man and the boy. "Well, it's been quite a day," he said. "Those runaway monks have given us the best business we've had all season." Then he placed his hands on Toby's shoulders. Seems like you handled that chimp pretty well. How would you like to take care of him? Try to keep him out of mischief. Toby was radiant. You mean it, sir? You heard me, boy. The colonel said, "From here on in, that chimp is your responsibility." Toby Tyler, a bad fall. The next few weeks passed very quickly. Toby and Mister Stubbs were now a regular feature of the street parade. Each day, the boy grew fonder of the mischievous little chimp, but keeping him out of trouble was no easy job. Between watching after Mr. Stubbs and working for Mr. Tupper, Toby Tyler was kept quite busy. But he never forgot Aunt Olive and Uncle Daniel. All the money he earned went directly into the pouch given him by Sam Treat. As soon as the pouch got full enough to bring to his uncle, Toby meant to go home. Then one day he paused by the practice ring to watch Janet and Ajax. With their horse, with her horse still in motion, the tiny girl dropped whitely to the tan bark and came forward to greet him. "Hello," she said. "We haven't seen you around lately." Toby smiled shyly. "Mr. Tupper kind of keeps me going." At that moment, Ajax sauntered over. "Well, if it isn't the great peanut salesman," he sneered, "the death-defying daredevil of the lemonade stand." Toby was staring at the practice ring. "Sure are pretty horses," he said. "Do you like horses?" Janet asked eagerly. "Eagerly." "What would a peanut vendor know about horses?" Ajax said. "Hey, Janet, watch this." He ran across the ring and, with a flying leap, landed on his horse's back. Toby watched enviously. Suddenly, Toby said, "I do know something about horses. It so happens I got a horse of my own." Janet was delighted. "Really, Toby?" "Yep. His name is Old Red." Of course, he's not really old. That's just his name. Is he a gated horse? Toby had never heard the word before. Gated? You know what gate does he favor most? Uh, I think he favors the gate most that opens down to the pasture. Lots of sweet clover there. Janet laughed prettily. Oh, Toby, you're joking. Hey, Janet. Or hey, Janet. Ajax called from the ring. Look. He tipped down and did a shoulder stand off the back of his cantering horse. Gosh, Toby said, "That's pretty good." Janet said, "Don't look at him. He thinks whenever he puts, whenever he's out in that ring, the whole world has to stop and watch him." Tell me some more about Old Red. Can he jump? Can he jump? Toby said, "Like the time he saw a copperhead coiled up in a potato furrow." Ajax called again. Hey, Janet! This time he unstrapped his leather safety belt and tossed it away with a flourish. Janet turned pale. Ajax, you know what the colonel said about working without the belt. Posing cockily, Ajax said, "Ah,、uh, who needs that thing? Now that I have your kind attention, I should like to perform that most hazardous of all feats—a genuine somersault." Janet put her hand up to her mouth. Ajax, no! As Ajax balanced himself for the stunt, several handlers moved forward in alarm. Smiling confidently, the tall boy launched himself forward. But instead of completing the somersault, he landed awkwardly on the horse's rump, and losing his balance, crashed heavily to the side of the ring. He lay there with one foot twisted painfully beneath him. Ben Cotter and Colonel Castle came running. Ben bent down to examine the injury. Shaking his head, he looked up at the colonel. Pretty bad. 
Ajax was carried off on a stretcher, and Colonel Castle shook his head grimly. Here we are, he said, going into our peak playing time, and a top act goes up the chimney. Well, what do we do about it? Colonel? What? Toby Tyler can ride, Janet said. Ben said, who? Toby gulped. He was more than startled. He was more startled than Ben. It's true, Janet went on earnestly. He has his own horse at home. He told me. Toby tried to tiptoe away, but the colonel stopped him with a shout. You! Boy! The colonel strode up to where Toby stood, quaking. Can you ride? Me? Well, it was just around the farm. Never mind that. Just so you had some experience, I'll take care of the rest. Like a drowning man clutching at a straw, Toby said, But sir, I've got to work for Mr. Tupper. The colonel snorted. I'll take care of Tupper. Now let's get this straight, Toby Tyler. We're going to make a bareback rider out of you, understand? Toby moaned. Yes, sir. The colonel turned to Ben Cotter. Ben, start first thing tomorrow morning. We'll be at the county seat in Waterford in two weeks. I want this boy riding by then. Toby Tyler in the ring. Harry Tupper made a long face. He and Colonel Castle were discussing Toby's future. It's not fair, Colonel, he said gloomily. Toby Tyler's the best boy I ever had. You can't take him away from me. Stop whimpering, the Colonel said. Find yourself another boy. I feel responsible for Toby. He's liable to get hurt fooling around them horses. Ben will take good care of him. You know that. Tupper sighed. It just don't rest easy on my conscience. The colonel frowned, and there was a dangerous look in his eye. Just how much would it take to soothe that conscience of yours? Well, I hate to put it in terms of money, but I'd say, oh, about $40 a week? Suppose we make it 10 How does 30 sound to you, sir? It sounds like 15 Colonel, I'd like to help you. Tell, me what I'll do. tell you what I'll do. No, Mr. Tupper, the, co- the colonel shouted. I'll tell you what I'll do. You get $20 a week finding fee for that boy, and that's final. With that agreement, the two men felt they had settled Toby's future. As far as they were concerned, nothing now stood in the way of his becoming a bareback rider, but they didn't know what was going on inside Toby's head. That night, seated alongside Ben Cotter on the front seat of the monkey wagon, Toby said, Ben, I told a lie. Ben nodded gravely. That's so. I can't ride, Toby said, not hardly at all. Ben said, ought to be a pretty good pile of coins in that pouch of yours. You could buy a ticket straight home and still have some money to give your Uncle Daniel. Toby thoughtfully fingered the leather pouch. Mr. Stubbs stirred restlessly on his lap. When do you figure on leaving, Ben said. Will you look out for Mr. Stubbs, Ben? He don't know I'm going. Glaring briefly at the chimp, Ben said, he won't starve. I'll come back some day, Ben, and buy him from Colonel Castle. Sure, now why don't you get some sleep? After Toby had settled down on the top of the wagon, he said softly, Ben, next to Mr. Stubbs, you and Sam are the best friends I got. Don't get all wrought up, Ben said. In a few weeks, you'll forget what I looked like. No, Ben, I'll never forget you. Go to sleep, Ben said. The caravan continued moving along the road, and at last Toby fell asleep. But Mr. Stubbs, lying beside him, was still awake and playful. The chimp's paw darted into Toby's pocket and came out with the leather pouch. Curiously, Mr. Stubbs worked at the drawstring, opened it, and withdrew one of the coins. He sniffed the coin, studied it intently on both sides, and finally bit into it. Then, disappointed by the taste, he heaved it over the side into the passing roadway. 
While Toby slept and Ben half dozed on the driver's seat, the chimp kept taking coins out of the pouch. One by one, each coin was sniffed, studied, bitten, and then flung away. When the pouch was empty at last, Mr. Stubbs turned it inside out and holding it on his lap, went to sleep. When Toby saw the pouch on the chimp's lap in the morning, he snatched it away and examined it quickly. Mr. Stubbs, my money, where is it? Toby grabbed the monkey and shook him. What did you do with it? Mr. Stubbs whimpered. Toby had never shaken him before or spoken in such tones of anger and despair. The chimp tried to climb onto his lap, but Toby pushed him away. What's the trouble, Ben wanted to know. Mr. Stubbs threw away my threw my money away. That's what I get for making a friend of him, he said bitterly. Ben's face grew stern. Near as I remember, he said, Colonel Castle made the monk your responsibility. You took him on, didn't you? Nobody forced you to do it. Toby bit his lips. No, then don't go blaming the monk. But all my savings, my money is gone. You think money's your only problem? That's easy. Ben pulled a wallet out. Here, take what I've got. There's enough to get you home and some left over. He pushed some money toward Toby. Toby's face was flaming. He made no move to take it. Take it, Ben said angrily, and get out of here before you get in any deeper. Toby remained silent. Ben rubbed his chin thoughtfully. You mean you don't want to run away, he said. You want to go on taking care of this ungrateful little monk? Toby pressed his lips together. You mean you want to go out in the practice ring today and work off some of that trouble you lied yourself into? Toby hung his head. He felt for a moment as though he were going to cry. Then suddenly he reached out and took Mr. Stubbs into his arms. Ben's eyes twinkled. All right, see you're in that ring at 11 sharp this morning. He, and then he added gruffly, and don't think it's going to be fun. Ben was right. The practice ring wasn't fun. Toby wore patched tights with a leather belt around his middle. Attached to the belt was a rope which ran up to an overhead swivel. Ben Cotter stood in the center of the ring, a whip in his hand. Go on, Ben ordered. Get on that horse. He won't eat you. Toby gulped, got on the waiting horse, and struggled up to a standing position. Then Ben flicked his whip, and the horse moved forward at a slow walk. Toby was amazed. The horse had almost completed a full circuit of the ring, and he was still standing. But then Ben flicked his whip again, and the horse's gait changed from a slow walk to a canter. Immediately, Toby lost his balance. The horse shot out from under him, and he was left dangling at the end of the safety rope. Toby floundered in midair until the horse came around again. Seizing the harness, he pulled himself down onto the horse's back. There he clung, flat on his face. Stand up, Ben shouted. At the, as the morning wore on, Toby grew wearier and gloomier. It's no use, Ben, he said at last. I can't do it. Ben shrugged. That's just about what Ajax said would happen. Toby stuck out his lower lip. He did, did he? That's not all. Ajax said you'd put your tail between your legs and quit the first day. Well, Toby, was he right or are you ready to try again? The horse was still circling the ring. Grimly, Toby turned to meet it. He leaped, but hitting the horse's side, bounced away. Gaining his feet, he turned to meet the horse again. This time, he got on top of the animal and managed to pull himself to his feet. Ben's eyebrows rose. Not bad for a beginning, he said. After lunch, we'll work some more. Toby Tyler, Letters from Home Day after day, Toby went back to the practice ring. 
What with Ben's patience and his own pluck, he was soon standing erect while the horse went around and around the ring at a fast gait. Her, Harry Tupper was delighted by Toby's rapid progress. The concessionaire loved money above everything else, and he was getting $20 every week from Colonel Castle. His heartfelt wish was that Toby Tyler should be a very good rider and a source of income to him forever. For Toby, these were the greatest days of his life, but he still thought about home. He couldn't help wondering why he hadn't heard from Uncle Daniel and Aunt Olive, why they hadn't answered his first letter, and so one night he sat down to write them another letter. Ben, he said, I forgot. How do you spell, Uncle? Dread it, boy, it's not the spelling of a letter that's important, it's what you say. Did you tell your folks that you missed them? Not exactly, Toby said. Did you say you loved them? Ben continued. Folks put a lot of store in things like that. A tear came to Toby's eye. He knew how good it would have made him feel if his aunt and uncle had written things like that to him, but not even one letter had come from home. Toby sighed as he wrote the words, I love you very much, your friend, Toby Tyler. The circus reached Waterford a few days later. The street parade had gone smoothly, and now the big show was underway. In less than half an hour, Toby would ride in public for the first time. Toby's costume, an old cast-off that had once belonged to Ajax, was two sizes too large for him. The reflections staring back at him from the dressing table mirror looked more like a pale scarecrow than a daring bareback rider. You'd be scared too, he said to Mr. Stubbs, who was perched on the table, if you had to go in front of all the people. At that moment, Sam Treat breezed into the tent. How are we getting on, the clown said. Despairingly, Toby tried to gather in some of the slack of the baggy pants. This doesn't seem to fit very well. V needs some magic, Sam said in his comical Dutch accent. Close the eyes, please. Toby wonderingly closed his eyes, and Sam beckoned to the entrance flap. A moment later, the tent was filled with performers shouting, Surprise! Toby opened his eyes. Janet was proudly holding up a handsome new riding costume directly in front of him. It is a gift, she said, from all of us. Good luck, Toby. The boy's heart brimmed with happiness. He felt that nobody ever had truer friends. Everybody out, Sam shouted. Toby has just three minutes left to dress. Toby changed into the new costume with record speed. He looked in the mirror and smiled proudly. But then, glancing down at his feet, he groaned. His riding shoes were missing. He had left them at the lemonade stand. As Toby rushed out, Mr. Stubbs started picking at his tether. The little chimp was an accomplished escape artist. He reached the lemonade stand just a moment after Toby. There, aping Toby's frantic search for the shoes, he began pawing through the pockets of a coat hanging over a camp chair. That's Mr. Tupper's coat, Toby said. Leave it. Toby found the shoes, then hurried over to pick up some letters that the chimp had dropped to the ground. He was just about to return them to the coat pocket when suddenly he stopped, frozen, his hand in midair. No, Toby thought, it couldn't be. Yet no matter how he squinted at the envelope, the address remained the same. Master Toby Tyler, Kurt, um... Master Toby Tyler, care of Colonel Castle's Great American Circus. Toby looked at the other envelopes. They were all the same, all addressed to him and written by Aunt Olive. For a moment, he was unable to speak or move. Then he picked up Mr. Stubbs and hugged him. They're all for me, Mr. Stubbs. They did write. They did. 
Before he could say another word or even stop to wonder what the letters had been doing in the pocket of Mr. Tupper's coat, Ben found him and hauled him off. In the center ring, Colonel Castle had already started the announcement. Ladies and gentlemen, we present for your kind approval those daring young equestrians, Mademoiselle Janet and Monsieur Toby. Toby was in a daze, but he rode like a veteran, taking all the jumps with ease and grace. The audience clapped and cheered. He and Janet had to take repeated bows, and then he had to fight his way through a group of admiring performers. Excuse me, he said, stammering his thanks. I've got to read my letters. Back in the tent, Toby removed the letters from inside his writing costume. As he sat down at the dressing table, Mr. Stubbs jumped onto his shoulder. When Toby had finished reading, his eyes were misted. They miss me, Mr. Stubbs, he said softly, and Uncle Daniel isn't well. He had to take over the chores I used to do, and with the rest of the work, it's too much for him. They want me to come home. They need me. I've got to go to them before anybody here tries to stop me. Toby quickly changed into his own clothes. He wrote a note saying goodbye and thank you to Ben and Sam and put it in the mirror where they would be sure to find it. Then, picking up the chimp, he hugged him tightly. Mr. Stubbs, he said, I can't take you with me. You don't belong to me. They'll say I stole you. You understand, don't you? I'll come back and get you some day. Honest, I will. Toby set Mr. Stubbs down and ran out of the tent. Immediately, the little chimp began throwing himself against his tether, trying to, break for, trying to break it. He tried again and again until at last it snapped. Then he hurried out into the darkness. Toby Tyler Pursuit Unfortunately, it was Harry Tupper who found Toby's note. As he read it, the concessionaire's face grew dark with anger. The ungrateful little whelp, after all he'd done for him, teaching him the business, then not standing in his way when he wanted to become a bareback rider. The boy was a gold mine. To hold on to him, Tupper had tampered with the mails, receiving, reading, and hiding Toby's letters from home. Tupper sighed with desolation. Then, glancing down, he saw the snapped tether. Tupper stiffened. The chimp! A crafty smile slowly spread over his face. The chimp had broken away after the boy. Now Harry Tupper could count on the local sheriff to help get Toby Tyler back. The chimp caught up with Toby at dawn. The boy was asleep in a culvert, and Mr. Stubbs awakened him by dropping a few sticks on his nose. Gosh, Mr. Stubbs, Toby said worriedly, why did you follow me? They'll be after me for sure now. It was still early morning when Harry Tupper, driving a rented one-horse rig, pulled up before a general store not too far from the culvert. Inside at the counter, a pleasant-faced young man named Jim Weaver was buying cartridges for his rifle. The hunting dog at his feet glanced up as Tupper burst in through the door. Tupper headed for the telephone on the rear, on the rear wall and whirled the side crank importantly. Operator, he said, get me the sheriff over at Bartonsville. It's important. At this, Jim Weaver turned and listened attentively. Sheriff, this is Harry Tupper representing Castle's Great American Circus. I want you to look out for a small boy, about 11 years old. Calls himself Toby Tyler. I figure he's going in your direction. He ran away last night, took along a valuable animal, a chimpanzee. Thanks, Sheriff. You find him and we'll be glad to express our appreciation if you know what I mean. Tupper was smiling smugly as he hung up. Then, noticing Jim Weaver's rifle and dog, he sauntered over to the counter and addressed the young hunter. 
You probably know this part of the country pretty well, he said. If you find that boy, there's a reward of ten dollars in it for you. Jim Weaver coldly looked Tupper up and down. I'm not much at tracking small boys, he said. Bobcats are fearsome enough for me. Tupper could sense the distaste Jim Weaver felt for him. He backed away quickly, muttering, suit yourself, and then he ran out to the rig and drove away. Meanwhile, Toby was trudging along the road to Bartonsville with Mr. Stubbs on his shoulder. The boy's spirits were high, for every step was bringing him closer to his aunt and uncle. Suddenly, there was the sound of an approaching wagon. Quickly, Toby and Mr. Stubbs plunged into the undergrowth at the side of the road. A few moments later, Harry Tupper drove up and stopped. Tupper had spotted a blur of movement as the two had left the road, and now he got down to investigate. He beat through the underbrush with no success. At last, he reluctantly returned to his rig. Toby and Mr. Stubbs had been hiding behind a tree just beyond the underbrush. As the wagon moved slowly away, they turned and plunged deeper into the woods. They ran until they came to a softly rolling knoll. Toby felt winded and slowed down to a walk. Chattering loudly, the chimps scampered ahead and disappeared in the undergrowth. Nearby, Jim Weaver was instantly alert as his, as his dog stopped in her tracks and pricked up her ears. She had heard Mr. Stubbs. With a yelp, the dog bounded into the bush. The young hunter followed quickly, bringing his rifle to the ready. Mr. Stubbs, Toby called. Where are you? Mr. Stubbs! Mr. Stubbs streaked along the ground, closely pursued by the barking dog. Without breaking his stride, the chimp grabbed an overhanging branch and pulled himself up. Swinging and leaping frantically, he climbed toward the crown of the tree. Glancing up, Jim Weaver saw some branches moving high overhead. He raised his rifle and took careful aim. Toby heard the report of the gun and came running, cold terror on his face. There was a heavy sound of branches crashing above, and then the little chimp came tumbling through the leaves onto the ground. His eyes were closed, and blood was trickling from a wound in his chest. Dropping down beside him, Toby cried out in, ang cried out in anguish, Mr. Stubbs, don't, don't leave me! But the chimp lay motionless, his eyes closed. Jim Weaver slowly put his rifle down. Believe me, he said, I'm sorry. I had no idea. I thought it was a bobcat. Toby was beyond comforting. You killed him, he sobbed. You're a murderer. Behind them, someone cleared his throat. It was Harry Tupper. He had heard the barking and the shot and come running. Now he took in the situation at a glance. Well, now, Toby, he said at last, that's too bad. Really too bad. You see, if you hadn't run away, this terrible thing wouldn't have happened. It's your fault. Toby was stricken. My fault, he said. That's right. Mr. Stubbs would be alive and well now if you hadn't run off. Come on now, let's go back. Maybe the colonel will give you another pet. I want Mr. Stubbs, Toby sobbed, but Tupper pulled him roughly to his feet and dragged him away. It's not the boy's fault, Jim Weaver said, following them. It's mine. Tupper shook his head. Forget it, young fellow. Accidents will happen. The important thing is the lad is safe and sound. With these words, he pulled the sobbing boy into the rig and drove off. Jim Weaver stood by the road until the rumble of the wheels faded away. Then he turned and walked back to the place of the accident. As he bent to pick up his rifle, he glanced toward the spot where Mr. Stubbs had fallen. He gasped, scarcely able to believe his eyes. The little chimp had vanished.
Toby Tyler together again. The moment the rig pulled into the circus grounds, Toby jumped down and ran toward Colonel Castle's office wagon. Tupper ran after him, shouting, Just a minute, I'll tell him, stop! But Toby was already inside. Colonel, he said, it was my fault. I ran away and Mr. Stubbs ran after me. I didn't want it to happen. Honest, I didn't. Toby, the colonel said gently, there's someone here to see you. Aunt Olive and Uncle Daniel were sitting in the wagon. Toby's aunt held out her arms and he ran to her and buried his face in her shoulder. Toby, Uncle Daniel said, will you forgive me? Outside, Tupper was being dealt with by Ben Cotter. The strong man's face was grim and forbidding. You lily-livered skunk, he said. I found out what you did with Toby's letters. Now, now, Ben, Tupper whimpered. I, ju I just didn't want to upset the lad. Ben jabbed him in the chest with his finger, pushing him back. Tampering with the mail. That calls for a jail sentence, Mr. Tupper. It was just a little tamper, Tupper moaned. I didn't mean to. I, I was going to. Would you care to make an agreement, Mr. Tupper? Fine, I'd like that. Anything you say, Ben, but I want you to give up the share of Toby's money you've been getting. Ben, the thought of giving up money made Tupper bleat with anguish. You don't know what you're saying. Ben jabbed him in the chest again. I want you to stay away from that boy. Oh, yes, Ben, absolutely. I want you to behave nice and pretty. Yes, sir, Ben, depend upon it. Because if you don't, I'm liable to do something like this. And Ben picked Tupper up by the scruff of the collar and dropped him into a nearby tub of water. That night, Toby walked with his aunt and uncle through the circus grounds. You've made a lot of good friends here, Uncle Daniel said. For a moment, Toby said nothing. Then he said so low they could hardly hear. I just wish you could have met my best friend of all. Ben Cotter hurried into sight. Sorry to bother you, Toby, he said. Can you run over and tell Sam Treat to meet me at the stock tent right away? Sure, Toby said, running off. He stopped short, just inside the canvas flap of the clown's tent. Jim Weaver was standing there with his dog. You, Toby said hoarsely, what are you doing here? The hunter smiled and moved aside. Staring, Toby walked slowly across the tent. Gathered in a circle around the small planked table were Sam and his family of dogs. Sam was smiling and his dog's tails were wagging briskly. As Toby drew near, he heard a familiar chattering, and then a young chimpanzee sat up in full view on the table, his chest tightly wrapped in bandages. Mr. Stubbs, Toby cried. Oh, Mr. Stubbs! Bullet just ventilated his side a little, Sam said. He was off and running before you and Tupper drove off. Mr. Weaver and his dog were good enough to track him down and bring him home. Mr. Stubbs was clinging tightly to Toby, making soft, loving sounds when Ben let Aunt Olive and Uncle Daniel in. Toby greeted them with shining eyes. Remember my wishing you could meet my very best friend, he said. Well, here he is, Mr. Stubbs. Just then, a blare of music from the main tent signaled the start of the evening show. Ben winked broadly. There's somebody else they still have to meet, he said, and that's a certain daring young bareback rider named Mizier Toby. Now get a move on. Janet's waiting. A great feeling of happiness swept over the old farmer and his wife when they saw the equestrian act. This was the greatest moment in their lives. It was deeply satisfying to see the ease and grace with which Toby performed and to hear the enthusiastic response of the audience. As Toby daringly jumped from his horse through a flaming hoop, the crowd gasped. That boy, one lady exclaimed, isn't he wonderful? The lady happened to be sitting near Aunt Olive and Uncle Daniel. Leaning over toward her, they both smiled proudly and said as one, he's our boy. 
Meanwhile, in Sam's tent, the little chimp had already begun untying the knots of his leash. The tether had yet to be invented that could keep Mr. Stubbs and Toby apart. You see, Toby Tyler was his boy, too. The End Paul Revere There was once a man named Paul Revere who rode under the midnight moon. He knew he might never return, but he went riding, riding, riding for liberty, because he wanted a country without a king, a country where all men could be free. Paul Revere was a silversmith in old Boston town. If anything could be made of silver, Paul Revere could make it. In his shop on Fish Street, he made teapots and cream pots, buckles and bowls and spoons and jugs and cups. But on this April night, he left his shop. He walked quickly through the streets, keeping away from the king's soldiers in their red coats. Robert Newman was waiting for him, almost hidden by the shadow of Christ Church. The king's soldiers march tonight, Paul Revere said. They want to capture our guns and gunpowder and some of our men. I am riding to Lexington to give the warning, but the redcoats may stop me. We are to tell our men with lanterns how the British go, one if by land and two if by sea. Robert Newman nodded. I know the plan. I will show the lanterns from the tower of the church. Show two lanterns. The redcoats are going by sea, said Paul Revere. While Robert Newman stared up, started up the tower, Paul Revere hurried home. He put on his boots and riding coat and said goodbye to his wife and children. Good luck, father, said young Paul, his oldest son. Thank you, son, Paul Revere said. Now it's up to you to take care of things here, for there is no telling when I will return. Once again, Paul Revere went out into the night. With two friends, he went to the river bank where he had hidden a rowboat. My spurs, he said. I've forgotten my spurs. How can I ride without them? Then he saw that his dog had followed him. Writing a note to Mrs. Revere, he tied it to the dog. Home, boy, he said. Home, as fast as you can. The dog was back in a few minutes and tied around his neck were the spurs. Ah, that's better, said Paul Revere. Getting into the boat, Paul Revere and his friends began to row across the river. Floating on the water was the ship Somerset. It was a big ship, the king's ship, and it had 64 cannons. Its lanterns shone out in the darkness like staring eyes. Paul Revere kept listening for the roar of cannon or the shout of a ship's officer, but he would hear nothing, and at last the boat touched shore. We did it, Paul Revere said. We did it right under their noses. Not far from shore, Paul Revere met some men. They led him to Deacon Larkin's house and gave him a horse. You must be careful, sir, said one of the men. There are redcoats on the road. I will, Paul Revere said as he got into the saddle. Well, gentlemen, I must be off. And Paul Revere began riding, riding, riding for liberty. Past fields and meadows, past orchards and farms, he rode. Brooks and streams flashed by in the moonlight. And in all the world there was no sound but the rush of wind and the thud of the horse's hooves on the road. Then ahead of him he saw two men on horseback. Their pistols gleamed in the moonlight. Soldiers, Paul Revere said, redcoats. One of the soldiers galloped toward him and Paul Revere cut across a field. Near a swamp he suddenly turned aside. He smiled as the horse behind him crashed into the swamp, its hooves sinking in the mud. Spurring on his horse, Paul Revere raced to another road. Riding, 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 he came to the village of Medford. He stopped at a house and pounded on the door. 
Wake up, he shouted. The redcoats are coming. At every house all the way to Lexington, Paul Revere shouted his warning. Two arms, two arms, the redcoats are coming. And everywhere men reached for their rifles. They were minutemen, ready to fight in a minute. Women ran to the swamps with their children. Church bells rang and drums rolled, for the redcoats were coming and the time had come to fight for liberty. And when the redcoats marched into Lexington, the Minutemen were there before them. A shot was fired and the battle started, and the battle was the start of a great war. For years the war went on, and when the war was over, there was a new country, the United States of America. It was a country without a king where all men could be free, and Americans have never forgotten Paul Revere, who rode under the midnight moon, riding, riding, riding for liberty. Donald Duck in Disneyland. Hurry up, boys, keep together and stay right with me, said Donald Duck anxiously as he and his nephews moved along with the crowd toward the gates of Disneyland. Soon they found themselves in the, rail in the railroad station entrance to Disneyland. Beyond the open doorway stretched Main Street, USA, and beyond that, as the boys well knew, spread a magic wonder world. Come on, cried Huey, tugging at Donald. Let's go to Fantasyland, cried Dewey. No, the world of tomorrow, said Louie. Rocket to the moon, Huey broke in. Wait, said Donald. First, we must take the train ride around Disneyland and see the overall view. So he bought four tickets. But when he turned around, not a single nephew was in sight. Train ride's a perfect way to spot lost boys, the train conductor suggested. So Donald hopped aboard and found himself a seat. The train started up and soon was steaming past the tropical jungles of True Life Adventureland. As Donald watched, dazzled by the bright flowers and brilliant birds in the trees, a riverboat chugged into view, and there at the rail lounged Huey Duck. But Huey could not see an alligator which was waiting just around the bend with wide and grinning jaws. Watch out, Huey, Donald cried, but the train chugged out of sight before the boat reached the bend. Stop the train, cried Donald. I have to get out, but the train went chugging on. Ahead, a whistle hooted. Donald looked around. The scenery had changed. Here, a paddle-wheel excursion boat was steaming down a river of America, and on the far bank sprawled a quaint old river town. Donald scanned the steamer's decks. Just then, the steam whistle screeched, toot-a-toot-toot, and there, hanging on the whistle cord, was a grinning dewy duck. Around a curve in a desert road, a stagecoach came lurching at full speed. At the window of the stagecoach, two faces appeared, surely Huey and Louie Duck. Just behind it raced wild Indians, waving bows and tomahawks and shrieking war cries. Down, boys, shouted Donald as the train raced past. Get out of their range! Toot, toot! Down below ran another train, the Casey Jr. on a dizzy ride. And in the cab of the engineer, whom should Donald spy but Dewey Duck, waving to Uncle Donald. Keep your eyes on the track, shouted Uncle Donald. Watch where you're taking the train. As Donald sank trembling into his seat, down the aisle the jolly conductor came. No sign of your nephews yet, he smiled. Well, don't you worry, they'll turn up safe and sound. With a pat on Donald's shoulder, he went on his way. Turn up, Donald gasped. Safe and sound, he shuddered. For a few moments then, the train chugged past a green and shady grove. Donald stretched and took a deep, happy breath. Everything looked so peaceful here. Wee! Look at me, Uncle Donald, cried a familiar voice. Donald spun around. 
A pirate ship was sailing toward the clouds on its way to Peter Pan's Neverland. From the deck, Louie Duck waved both hands at Uncle Don. But far ahead, Donald could see Captain Hook with drawn sword waiting for the ship to come near. Get your head down and hang on tight, called Donald, but Louie had not heard. As he disappeared, he was waving still. Some fun, Uncle Donald. Look at me. Down a streamlined highway, small cars were running, an intent young driver at each wheel. In one car was Huey Duck, steering with both hands. Huey, you don't know how to drive, called Donald, not knowing that Huey had just passed his Disneyland driving test. Then the train took Donald out of sight, and to his relief, he saw the station ahead. Donald was the first one off the train, but his shaking knees would not take him far. He had to stop and lean against a post, one hand over his eyes. Where, he wondered, was the hospital. He supposed he should look there first. Uncle Donald, hurry up! The train's about to leave! Huey, Dewey, and Louie were dancing around him. We've had a wonderful time, they said. Now we're ready to go with you for a quiet trip on the train. Quiet, squeaked Donald. You boys go ahead. I can't stand that excitement again. So while the boys hopped onto the train, Donald tottered off to take a peaceful rocket trip to the moon.